On today's episode, we'll be getting to know therapist and Ada Bible attender, Diane Schroeder, her insight into helping couples grow into affair-proofed marriages with proper boundaries will be something you won't want to miss. This is Together. This is Together, an Ada Bible Church podcast about the world of marriage, where we attempt to invite you to explore the ways that marriage works and doesn't work. From practical ways of learning to biblical inspiration, we invite you to listen to other professionals and couples to help enrich your marriage. Here are your hosts, Samuel Jones and Dr. Kelly Bonniewell. So Samuel, I'm really excited about this podcast we're doing today because we get to interview a good friend of ours, Diane Schroeder. Yeah. And uh, Diane is uh, one of uh, uh, counselors in our community. And we're going to get to know a little bit about Diane, know about her practice. And then um, one of the areas that Diane has worked uh, quite a bit is working with couples where there's been an affair. So she's going to be talking about that topic. So on that note, Diane, thank you for joining our podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So to begin, Diane, uh, just I, I want people to get a sense of who you are. So just tell our audience a little bit about. Um, your family, your interests, what you like to do, you know, just more about you personally. Sure. Well, I'm uh, married to Dan, and this year is 30 years together. Wow. Which Amazing. is awesome. Uh, he's my best friend and my lover and my confidant and my buddy, and he's just awesome. So I give a shout out to him. Thank you, Dan, for being so great. And yeah. I'm. we have two kids. Uh, we have a daughter who's 24, and she's a graphic designer living her dream life in Chicago. Nice. And uh, we have a son who's a senior in engineering school, and he's about to graduate. So we're really proud of both of our kids for kind of getting launched and out of the nest. And so we're in a new stage of empty nest, and that's uh, a whole new thing. And we're exploring that together. And I love to play golf. Mm-hmm. Um, I, lo- I love to play golf. And uh, I can't wait to get out on the course. I haven't been out yet and um, hopefully getting out this week. And I love to travel. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity once we open up again from the pandemic. And I am just a lifelong learner, super curious, love to just learn new stuff. And oh, I have a dog. So he's my baby. He's 15. <laughs> and so it's all about the baby right now. And um, we, an interesting kind of fun fact is we sold our home during COVID in one day over asking because it's a seller's market. And then we mm-hmm. ended up in an apartment for 10 months during COVID, which has been a really interesting journey. And then we just moved last weekend to our new place. So we're super excited. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. That's awesome. So, okay, you you said you're a golfer. Now, you know, everyone says they're golfers until you get out on the course. Now, what what's your like? What's your best round of golf, Diane, that you've had? Oh, my word. Well, it depends. Uh, I'm not the kind of person who always keeps score. So my <laughs> best round is if I get off the course and I've had fun and I'm not playing angry golf. That's great. <laughs> So uh, I like to go out and have fun and I take lessons and every year I get better. So that's cool. That's great. And I think think I'm, my best round was nine holes under 55. Wow. That's great. Hey, and Samuel, I, I have golfed with Diane a couple of times and with her husband, Dan. And uh, 
Diane's a very good golfer. So, so yeah, that, uh, it's in the most important thing is it's really fun to play golf with her. Exactly. And I'll just say this, everyone's better than me. So I'm just, I just talk a lot of smack. That's all I do. Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's great. So Diane, you know, I know, you know, we've known each other for a little while, crossed each other's paths and our, in our road to counseling as well. And, and, and in that, I think there's just so much that our listeners can learn from your own journey. So I just want to take a couple of minutes and just ask, you know, how, how did you come to this place that said, I want to be a therapist? I want to be someone's counselor. How did you, how did you even get to that road? Wow. Yeah. Right. Samuel, you and I had several classes together in seminary, getting our master's in counseling. So we've journeyed a little bit together through that. So yeah. for sure. All right. So my quick story is I was a corporate uh, executive in healthcare and then married Dan and we decided to have kids and I accidentally became a a stay-at-home mom. (laughs) God called me, I guess. I don't know. I got the short straw. I can't really explain it, but we ended up, um, I never really intended to leave the corporate workforce, but I did and it became a really awesome journey. So I was at home quote unquote, full time with Kelly and Sammy for um, 16 years, I think, Mm. maybe 18. Anyways, um, and I began wondering what I was going to do next. You know, once the kids get into elementary school, I was always thinking about what is going to be my second act or my third act as far as profession is concerned. So I really was intentional about that. I prayed for probably a couple of years and started talking to various people Kelly, you being one of those people, if you remember our first meeting, I, Very I so. came into your office and said, what do you do? And how do you do this? And what's this all about? And so I went back to school. So I decided to pursue undergraduate education in psychology, where I went to Cornerstone. I did the adult program there. I took one class at a time, took summers off, just kind of really took my time there. And through that journey, I met professors who were private practice I thought, oh, that's cool. So then they encouraged me to go on to my master's degree. Mm. And so I ended up enrolling in seminary at Cornerstone and doing a dual enrollment um, opportunity there where I was finishing my undergrad and then went straight full on, didn't stop, you know, two and a half years burned through the uh, master's program so that I could open my own private practice. And so that goal came to fruition five years ago. And now I'm in private practice and I love it. Wow. That is an amazing journey. Like, you know, to, to, to take the path of, you know, you were in corporate healthcare and then you went into full-time, you know, motherhood. And in the name of your children or what again? The same as you guys, Kelly ah. Samuel. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. I said, wait, that this is interesting. That just dawned on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you know, to know, you know what this means. That means that together can last forever. That's right. <laughs> you know what, Samuel? I want to make a comment there uh, because I really wanted Diane to talk about this part of her story because it is extremely remarkable. Sure. Um, I very vividly remember meeting with Diane that first time. It was probably 11, almost 12 years ago. And Diane, uh, as she had mentioned, had been a stay at home for all those years. And then uh, we met 
got to, you know, I got to tell her a little bit about my journey and she told me a little bit about her journey and her dreams. And at that point, I, I'm not going to give up your entire age, but at some point in this, when we met, uh, Diane was in her forties and she, uh, was going to go pursue her undergraduate degree. Um, and then want to go on and continue a master's. Mm-hmm. And that is a major commitment. It's a major commitment just to get your master's, but to do an undergrad, finish up your undergrad and then get your master's. So really incredible. It's a great story for people who are maybe um, a little bit older and want to you know, change careers, especially now with all that's going on with COVID and job loss and all that. So just yeah. an amazing story where God has taken Diane in her life. Exactly, guys. I agree. And, you know, anyone can do it. Anyone can go back to school. Anyone can retrain themselves. If if you, you know, just think about it. I would always say to myself, well, I'm going to be 50 eventually. So I might as well be 50 with a master's degree. There you go. And so I just hunkered down and did the work. And before I knew it, it was over. And it's kind of a blur, but it really was, um, you know, life-changing and I have a whole new career now that I never would have expected at the time. And of course, Kelly, as you and I have talked about, there were many adjustments that I had to make Mm -hmm. to take on the responsibility of full-time grad work and Mm -hmm. internships and all of that. And so for anyone out there who's thinking of um, making, you know, a jump back into education or retraining, you just have to evaluate your priorities a little bit and make those adjustments and get your family's buy-in. I mean, I think that's kind of important. Dan was very supportive and the kids were very supportive. I mean, we were going on vacations with me bringing homework with me all the time. (laughs) And so they knew uh, mom can't participate because she has to do a research paper or mom can't come because she's taking a final. Uh, So they were very, you know, they understood that and they talk about it even today um, watching me do that. So that was kind of cool. That is cool. That's amazing. So you then, out of out of uh, graduating from GRTS, you then went and started uh, a private practice. Now, you know, everyone that starts a private practice isn't always successful their first time or second time around. But you went, started a private practice, and and out of that, you have particular interests that you like to work with clients with. Now, what are those? Right. Yes. Uh, so I also learned about a modality that I practice and it's called neurofeedback. Mm. And so I went on for postgraduate training and education after I finished my master's in a couple of areas, um, some certifications for couples counseling, as well as learning how to be a neurofeedback clinician. So I do brain training as a large part of my practice and everybody has a brain. So, uh, and Neurofeedback is just a wonderful non-medication alternative to mental health, behavioral health, clinical clinical mental health. So, right. So I I do um, a percentage of my work is talk therapy, traditional talk therapy, couples work, as well as neurofeedback brain training. Sure. So this this brain training, let's talk a little bit more about that. So, you know, who is who is who is that for? Who is that designed for? How does it kind of work uh, uh, specifically? If you can kind of give us a, a kind of a little bit of a detailed approach. OK, so neurofeedback is a non-invasive 
and I repeat that, (laughs) non-invasive. I'm not putting anything in the brain. We're not shocking the brain. It's a non-invasive modality using EEG technology to read the brain waves of the individual. And then we, I, I show the brain, so neurofeedback, we feed back to the client what their brain is doing in the moment, in real time. And what that does is that it helps the brain learn to perform better by watching itself. It's like putting a mirror up in front of the brain and saying to the brain, hey, look over here, check this out. Why don't we try it this way instead of that way? And the brain catches on and it learns. It's very similar to going to the gym and working out your muscles. Uh, It's brain training. So we train the brain in the session to regulate better, perform better. um, And that equates to symptom management. So Mm -hmm. An ideal neurofeedback client would be someone who doesn't sleep very well. So I work with a lot of insomnia clientele and people who have headaches or migraines. Uh, You know, the alternative to my treatment is Ambien or um, really um, powerful migraine medication, which ends up um, altering the brain. So what we can do without medication is teach that brain how to regulate well. So then the client will feel better and sleep better. And I also work with lots of anxiety clientele, a lot of depression clientele, as well as memory and ADHD focus and concentration, test anxiety. So anyone who kind of has those overactive symptoms I can teach that brain to regulate better. And then they graduate. Brain training is sustainable. They graduate. They don't need to come back after the brain has learned how to perform better. So that's that's a little bit about neurofeedback and who uh, the ideal client. So my my neurofeedback clients, my youngest right now is seven. Wow. And, mm. and my, old, my oldest client right now is 88. Mm. So wow. anyone in between. That's, that's so cool. cool. Yeah. That's so helpful, Diane. Thanks for sharing about that. So, Diane, the big topic we're going to talk about today is couples where there has been an affair and you've worked with couples who have been in this predicament. Uh, before we get started and jumped in, jump in about talking about what your experience has been as a counselor and kind of counsel to our listeners, I do, I want to go over some important statistics for our listeners when it comes to affairs. Uh, so again, if, you, if, if you're a listener who's a note taker, this might be a good time to grab your pencil. So when it comes to affairs, uh, 20% of them, it's uh, males who um, cause the affair and then about 13% female. However, with that number, one of the things I've seen is uh, more and more women are having affairs than say 10, 15 years ago. Uh, A big reason why we're talking about this topic is over the last five years, this has been a key, key care uh, aspect that we as staff have dealt with um, at the church, where pretty much mm, on average about once a week, um, our staff will hear about uh, one of our people who go to our church and there's been an affair. So with that number for Christians, it's about the when we're thinking of affairs, the Christian numbers are about the same as those in the general population. Um, 
about 83% knew the person in which they had an affair, and over 50%, it was actually a close friend. Uh, we'll probably talk about this later, but uh, affairs happen typically in two places, at church and at work. Um, uh, sadly, one-third of all marriages will end because there is an affair. And uh, for men, and this is an important uh, statistic, only 3% of men who will have an affair will leave their spouse for the person they had an affair. And then the final statistic, which is kind of grim, is there is a 75% divorce rate for marriages which were started because of an affair. So, um, you know, really, uh, obviously, this is really challenging work. So, to begin the discussion, Diane, like, what are some of the things you've experienced or heard, like, when you're working with couples, what what are some of those kind of common things that you've heard uh, people or couples say? Right. Yeah. So probably one of the first things I hear is I never expected this to happen. You know, most like a huge percentage of our population in the West believe that marriage is infidelity in marriage is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so and we all, you know, see most of us, even outside of the church, see infidelity as, you know, morally unacceptable. And yet, um, we get caught in the trap of it. And so people oftentimes walk around thinking, okay, it's wrong, but yet they get snaggled up in it. And, and so it's, it's in hindsight, almost every single person I work with says, I never expected this to happen mm-hmm. or I never expected my spouse to do this. I never thought this would happen to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, Another thing that I hear is kind of some of the reasoning behind the affairs. So, you know, my my wife wasn't there for me. She wouldn't listen to me. My husband was always gone. Uh, you know, I I was lonely or our marriage was kind of boring or flat. Uh, and Yeah, so there's just um a lot of a lot of people are really surprised. Yeah, yeah. And yet it's a very common, like you said, with the statistics, it's a very common occurrence. Hmm. Wow. So with those couples that you end up kind of seeing and you're and you're seeing these statistics and you're seeing some of these things that are happening, like someone comes to you and and just asks for help. How do you how do you help them? Well, yes, that's a loaded question, right, Samuel? Uh, Okay, so this is where the rubber meets the road, right? So as a therapist, um, there's, there's steps that we take, you know, as counselors. And my approach might be different from someone else's. But in general, um, I work with couples who are ready to explore what happened and do the work. And who are willing to um, go through the journey of recovery and healing. And so the first thing I'm looking for is readiness. Mm. And so um, I do an intake and an assessment. And so both parties 
the betrayed and betrayer, both parties need to be willing to work through the healing and recovery. And sometimes that's not happening. So it is kind of counter um, indicated or counterintuitive if, you know, one partner is just not there and ready to do the recovery. Um, but so as, as an intake, the first thing I'm looking for is, is this couple ready to go through the journey of recovery and healing? And are they going to take the time? Because especially in the beginning of the um, recovery process, there's a lot of trauma. Um, and there's a lot of um, individual work that needs to happen. So the person that's that's had the affair is also dealing with a lot of shame and guilt and rem- and hopefully remorse. That's another thing I'm looking for. Is the offender is the offender re- remorseful? Um, and so there's a lot of kind of do's and don'ts. So the 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 offender is it's not okay to blame the other person. <laughs> Right. So the person that's been betrayed is not at fault. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking for, you know, willingness, teachability, readiness in the beginning. And then uh, I do individual assessments as well. So I'll bring the couple in together and uh, do that a time or two. And then I split them up. And I do that because I believe that uh, marriage is both an individual and collective relationship so who we are as individuals is is really contributing to the marriage and so i just want to know about the person and their story their history and then i'm also kind of fishing uh look as i'm assessing i'm looking for whether this individual is willing to uh, forgive and whether they're willing to uh, make changes whether they're willing to engage in the process and if they have anything that's contraindicated, for example, if the betrayer, if the person who cheated is still cheating. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is, and they may not have admitted that a lot of times they don't want to tell their partner the whole story uh, or they've been caught in the affair. So the, the, and then also if that individual, either party, is engaged in any kind of addiction mm. or, uh, you know, individual things that need to be worked on, I'll separate them and work on that individually and then bring them back together for a time or two. But my overall approach is to assess in the beginning and then come up with a plan, depending upon what we're dealing with. Yeah. yeah. So, um, go ahead, Kelly. Uh, yeah, I just have a quick question, Diane. Uh, uh, well, all three of us now uh, have been trained in the Gottman method, and uh, uh, Gottman is very. Uh, John Gottman is a marriage therapist, marriage researcher. Excellent uh, for our listeners. Uh, definitely recommend his books. We'll put a couple of those in the show notes. But uh, one of his stances, as you know, Diane, is he and his wife, Julie, will not work with a couple where the affair is still going on. Is that also your typical or do you, you know, where, where do you stand on that? Well, I believe it's counterproductive if the um, affair is still happening. So 
what we, what I try to do early on, if that's what's happening, is we basically have a reveal and we we bring it into the open and we talk about that in a couple session. And if the if the person who's acting outside of the marriage is not willing to openly admit that and come clean and confess about that, then it's then marriage counseling is not going to be effective in my opinion. So yes, I do agree with Gottman on that. That's great. That's great. Um, I think another piece that you've drawn out, I just wanted to ask a question about, and maybe some clients or individuals out there may be wondering, well, why do they do this? You know, some therapists, including yourself, as you shared, you, you want to meet with individuals um, both collectively and individually in the context of marriage. Why do you why do you personally do that and try that option with uh, with individuals who are seeking support for couple counseling? Right. So you're asking why do I meet with them one on one and then bring them back together as a couple? Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, I also um like I mentioned earlier, I'm looking for their personal story, looking for their personal well-being, you know, how they're doing mentally, you know, is there any clinical mental health stuff going on? And that informs the treatment plan. Mm-hmm. And so if someone is dealing, let's say, with major depression, then that's going to have a big impact on the relationship. Also, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking for willingness. I'm looking for readiness. Uh, if the couple is not, if each person is not committed to at least a six to 12 month journey to recovery, then it's, uh, you know, if they're looking for a quick fix for this problem, uh, then I'm probably not the best therapist for them. So I'm also looking for a good fit. What is what is the ideal client for me? And am I the right therapist for this person? You know, as as therapists, we we need to be as ethical as possible. So for me, it's always I'm looking for whether this this couple is are we getting along? Is anyone resistant? Um, you know, it's not easy going through marriage therapy. Um, it's it's a hard journey. And I've had many couples, not many, but I've had a few couples who have just dropped out because it's too hard. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, that's their journey. But uh, if I'm going to commit to the work of guiding them through the healing and recovery, then I'm looking for commitment as well. So that's probably one of the number one things I'm looking for. But then, sure. you know, if if they're um, and I tell the individual when I'm doing the one on one, I tell them what we're talking about is confidential. You can tell me anything. And oftentimes I learn things that really help in the, the therapeutic process. Gotcha. Yeah, I can imagine, too, when when you're talking and working with those couples, both in the individual and collective context, that you're probably seeing, you know, some level of common mistakes um, within those within those marriages. What are what else? What kind of, I guess, mistakes do you typically see when, you know, dealing with couples? Right. Yeah. You know, there's the classic. Well, what was going on in the marriage before this happened? Mm -hmm. And uh no one is technically to blame there, right? Like the the person who didn't cheat isn't isn't really to blame for the fact that the marriage might have been not where it could be. Uh, but generally speaking, we're looking back and we're asking for you know what is what was going on in the marriage, wh- how healthy was it, uh, what what were some of the patterns that were going on, was the couple being intentional? 
uh, building kind of what I call divorce prevention or, or infidelity prevention into the relationship. And we can all get lazy there. I mean, Dan and I, 30 years this year, I mean, there's times we do a reboot. We, we say, okay, we haven't had a date night in a while. Uh, so I'm looking for, um, you know, kind of some of the deer in the headlights moments or the sheep getting caught up in the barbed wire. You know, what were you guys doing before this happened? Who were you before this, this infidelity occurred? And there's some ownership there, I think. Um, and what can we, what can we do now? What can we do differently if the couple's ready to go into kind of rebuilding? Cause initially the initial stage of marriage counseling after an affair is trauma work. You know, the person who's been, the person who's been, a, has been betrayed is usually in a state of trauma. And the person who's acted outside of the marriage needs to understand that, Yeah, that there has to be healing. There has to be recovery there. It's similar to being in a car accident and you are now in shock. And then you go through the stages of, oh, okay, this happened. And now I'm angry and uh, bitter and betrayed. And uh, how could this, how could you do this to me? and shock and then acceptance comes you know okay now that we're accepting that this happened now we're in the rebuilding phase yeah. and i think i see a lot of mistakes in the trauma phase so if you want to talk about that a little bit i think that would be good to throw in here well i think you know the big thing that i heard diane that i'm so glad that you said which is a truth is that if if you're a couple and there's been an affair uh I highly, highly recommend that you definitely need to get professional help because uh, we're going to jump in and talk about mentorship here in a second. Uh, but I definitely think you need to see a professional counselor. And I'm really glad you mentioned the aspect of it's a commitment and it's a six to 12 month commitment. I would say it's yeah. probably closer to 12 months than six months. And there are no quick fixes because, um, like you said, this. This affairs don't come out of a vacuum. Typically, uh, they they come they um, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, they're often grounded in friendships, and uh, and often the the betrayed is m maybe a friend with the one that the spouse had an affair with, and that e gets even more complex. So. Um, on that note, Diane, as you know, we have a mentorship ministry and men marriage mentorship at Ada isn't for couples who are in significant crisis, but we have had mentors walk. Uh, we've had mentors where the mentor couples had had an affair or there was an affair in their marriage and they walked with other couples where there was an affair. And that has been so, so helpful. And I've and I've watched from a distance just uh dramatic healing and change in the couples where there's been been an affair what what kind of it, we we have our uh, mentors listening what kind of advice would you give them if they are going to meet up with uh a couple where there has been an affair that's great kelly right and i think the precursor to that is that just because there's been an affair doesn't mean the marriage has to end mm -hmm. and uh in fact um, mentor couples are generally those who've gone through it, right? 
And they're, they're the ones offering hope to the, the couple that's in trauma because even after an affair, marriages can be uh, many, many, many couples report being happier mm-hmm. or not, not saying go have an affair so that your marriage can be better. But mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but definitely the, the stigma or the, uh, the peanut gallery would say, oh, well, he cheated on you, so you should divorce him. Well, no, not necessarily. So uh, there's hope. And I think that's one of the number one things that mentor couples offer is hope. And that uh, you can get to the other side of this. Uh, you can get through this. This will pass. Uh, you won't be, you know, an angry mess and a, you know, passive aggressive couple for very, you know, for the rest of your life. You know, here we are showing you God can heal, God can mend. We are the example. So I think the number one thing mentors, cu- mentor couples are doing is providing that example, that living, breathing, authentic example that this too can work out and you can get through this. And so for mentor couples, the, um, I think the role there is they're they're coming along as a support, and so they can befriend the couple. They can meet with them for dinner or coffee and hang out and just kind of talk. But the thing they're not doing is therapy. So I think that's mm-hmm. important to just to, to distinguish between the role of the mentor and the role of the the clinical clinically trained therapist. So the mentor is there to offer uh, support, maybe some homework with a book that they might be reading together. Uh, The number one thing the mentor couple should probably be thinking about is healthy boundaries with the couple. So, you know, establish early on in your mentor relationship what the communication should look like and how often you are going to be getting together. You know, you're not their new best friend, you're their mentor. So, what is appropriate for you as a mentor in terms of how often to meet with the couple, how how uh, available and accessible you're going to be, because you're not a 24-7 crisis hotline for the couple. Uh, and then um, just understand and, and ask for help as a mentor if you think you're over your head, uh, yeah, that if, if it's too much for you to call in support. So care department at Ada Bible Church, therapists that they're working with, um, get some additional resources, but certainly don't try to be their therapist because that's not what you're doing. And um, if the couple is not in marital counseling, I, like you said, Kelly, the mentor can highly encourage that and even make it um, part of the plan okay, I'll work alongside you guys and I want you to also be in marriage counseling. So it's a wonderful compliment um, because as a therapist, I'm not really able to do that for my client. I can't, I'm not meeting with them for coffee. I'm not a crisis hotline therapist. I meet with them weekly for an hour and then they go and live their lives and then they come back and we work on the plan. So the mentor is just a wonderful, um, godly healing um, bridge for the couple. I, I can, I, you know, you're going to position yourself for success and this is a wonderful way to do it is yeah. to add the mentoring. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, you know, I think it's so important that, you know, our mentors have, like you just said, 
you know, have the information that they need, but also be able to be bridges to therapists. We work coinciding. I'm a mentor and a therapist, but in the role of Ada Bible, being able to have someone where I can refer and or talk to, you know, say, hey, I'm dealing with this couple. Uh, is it possible you can help us with this or give us some tips or tricks? I think those things are really important to have. And, and, and I thank you for sharing that. So I think what's kind of just this next piece here for, for us, Diane, is we want to leave our listeners with just some, you know, some really tangent, you know, tangential type of things that they can take away in regards to their marriage. You know, people are going to ask the question, well, Diane, how do I affair proof my marriage? Right. If, they, if someone came to you with that question, they want the the Superman, Superwoman answers and, and thought processes. You know, what kind of things would you say to encourage couples out there on ways that they can affair proof their marriages? Good question, Samuel. Okay. So the first thing I would say is uh Realize that you're vulnerable. Sure. No matter who you are. So, you know, you can be in a great marriage like I have, and for 30 years, nothing really serious has happened. So I I could get lazy at this point. Uh, At any point in the history of your marriage, you're both susceptible Mm. to, to being tempted and to being lured away. Uh, and again, that's where you you hear the, I never thought this would happen to me. Mm-hmm. So I think couples who are walking along, cruising through their relationship, not even aware of this. And I'm not saying we should walk around in fear and we should be all worried about it, but just have the perspective that it is possible for anyone, any one of us. And it could be, um, you know, even same sex attraction. It can be, you know, your friend from work. It can be opposite sex. Um, it could be pornography. It could be, you know, watching, you know, um, sexy movies, anything. So just protecting yourself and being aware that you personally are vulnerable. And, and I, I always get a little nervous when someone says my wife would never do that, or my husband would never do that. Mm-hmm. And realize your husband or your wife, your spouse, your partner, and this also happens in dating relationships, people who are, you know, um, not married. Um, so, you know, your partner is susceptible and so are you. So then what can you do about that? And that's where we have to be proactive and have, um, I call it guardrails in place sure. for, your, for yourself and for your spouse and to talk about these kinds of things with your partner. Don't just assume that they're walking around with the same kind of um, perspective that you have. I think it's important um, to just be open. One thing Dan and I do, which is kind of funny, um, and now we're actually kind of, we, we actually get a kick out of it now, which, because it doesn't happen very often, but if we get hit on, we tell each other. Mm. So um, Interesting. Yeah. So we, we are very transparent where, you know, like I'll tell him if I come home and say, gosh, this guy at the grocery store was really kind of giving me the creeps or someone came up to me and talked to me in a way that was just not, you know, like my, my spidey sense was saying, this is a little bit over the line, or I got hit on at a party or I was traveling. My husband used to travel quite often and he would, so we always made it kind of a, um, um, a standard practice that we would tell each other 
Mm. immediately. So the next time we spoke, we told each other what had happened and then we would get a good laugh out of it. And so then at least that way it was out in the open and it was never kind of being hidden. Yeah. And then we, we did the same thing if we ever felt tempted. Um, hey, you know, I got to let you know, there's this, you know, there's this new girl at work and she's really sexy. And okay, what are you going to do about that? Or, you know, I saw a woman at the hotel. So my husband had a travel rule that he used. Um, he never went to the bar and ordered a drink by himself at a hotel. Mm. Um, because what would, what would that be? What opportunity would that be giving to himself or someone else? Um, now he couldn't be um strict about not working with women because you know he does he and a lot of his um staff are female and he travels with them sometimes he goes on appointments with them so for us um we were both like working with opposite sex people all the time so we also had some guidelines there that we put in place early on in our marriage where we if we started getting a little too friendly with someone at work we we backed way down and tried not to be alone with them um, we just had to be aware. And then also one thing we did, um, when I first, when we first met, I was in corporate America and I was, I was, you know, I had a staff and I had a bunch of guys that I worked with and I worked in a mostly male dominated industry. Mm-hmm. And so I was friends with a lot of the guys that I worked with. So I had a lot of guy friends when we met and Dan had girl friends that were girls as well. In fact, he had two female roommates at the time when we met. One of them did not like me because I think <laughs> she was she was interested, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, so um so one of the things we did was we we converted our friends into their friends. So in other mm. words, if I had a guy friend, they also became Dan's friend. Mm. And if Dan didn't like the guy and didn't want to be his friend, then I basically kind of stopped being his friend too. So I started including my opposite sex friends and really all my friends into friendship with Dan. And he did the same. So to this, to this day, he's still really good friends with one of my guy friends, Phil. And he, you know, whenever he travels to Atlanta, he gets together with him and has coffee. And I'm the same with um, a couple of his friends that he's had long-term that are female. So we just kind of converted it all and enmeshed it all so that there was no one hidden in the, in the fray there. Yeah. That's one thing. And I know I'm kind of going on here, but, um, no, this is good. Diane, keep going. So then another thing that I would recommend for couples is to recognize when you're disconnected. Mm -hmm. So the the reason this matters is because if I'm feeling disconnected from Dan, then I'm a little more susceptible to someone at work who I'm spending time with and chatting with. Um, and so my relationship at home is is critical. That's key. So I'm I'm going to be thinking about okay, are we intentionally connecting, or do I feel kind of distant from my spouse right now? And how do I rebuild that? Mm -hmm. And I'm working with individual clients right now on that very thing. You know, women who are coming to me right now saying, I just feel like my relationship with my husband's kind of flat and he doesn't want to come in. How can I, you know, what can I do to kind of get the spark back? So, um, you know, once we get married and we get into the rut of marriage and we get into the rut of family life, 
oftentimes we put our relationship on the back burner and that's where we get into trouble. And it's a lot more fun to be connected. So uh, think about ways you can bring connection back into your relationship. And most couples only spend about four or five minutes face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball talking per day. Whereas in the work in the workplace, we spend hours a day talking to other people. So, um, you know, you can switch that around. You can spend more time communicating and connecting and being so couples, especially according to the Gottman research, um, as you mentioned, Kelly, couples who are curious about their spouse, who are, you know, intentional. I mean, most prostitutes report that the, their Johns, their customers really just want to talk. Mm-hmm. So um, what can we do as, as spouses to connect? So I think that's number one. Um, and if it's missing, then what do you do? Um, what do you guys like doing together? And well, I don't really know. I don't really know the person anymore. We've kind of lost each other through the kids. Okay, well, take up a new hobby. And that's what Dan and I did. We started golfing together about six years ago. Because we knew the kids were leaving and we thought, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to (laughs) do? So recognize these big transitions in your life. You know, someone, um, you know, a baby, you know, getting pregnant, having a baby, someone changing jobs, moving, relocating, um, a death in the family, um, parenting transitions, you know, empty nest, uh, menopause, um, job loss, you know, any of those big transitions are really um, golden opportunities for, uh, looking outside the marriage. So be very careful when you're in a transition like that and notice, and here's the other thing to be aware of ahead of time, where you are connecting emotionally with someone else besides your spouse. Mm -hmm. So if you're leaning on someone else, um, for emotional support, that's an indicator, um, that you are in you are on um, shaky ground there. Um, so then what else? The last thing I would add is, um, let's see. Oh, yeah. You know, we say this all the time, date night. So we need, we need to do fun stuff and plan it, put it on the calendar. And then I would look at what, what's the intimacy like in your relationship? you know, has that gotten kind of stale as well? Okay, well, we need to schedule sex. So um, that's how it is, folks. If it's on the calendar, then we know it's probably going to be happening. And so we can get ready and we can be excited about that. And you can have um, some cute conversation or communication. Dan and I call it a staff meeting. So (laughs) whenever whenever we're kind of lacking in that department, I can text him staff meeting question mark, winky wink. And then he, oh my gosh, I I get like the heart and the emoji and, you know, heck yeah. So um, just kind of trying to keep it fun. Yeah. Samuel. No, that's great. I was just going to say, you know, I just hope I never run into you and, I, you know, I'll come across you and they say, yeah, I've got to go to a staff meeting. That's going to be weird. <laughs> this has been so awesome to talk to you and share what we've talked about today. I think it's going to be very helpful to our listeners. Um, to, to end, um, I want you to, uh, A, Give people your email and telephone number if they want to reach out to you for counseling. But before you do that, like what it, what are just a couple of, you mentioned neurofeedback. 
What are a couple of areas that you feel like very confident in or that you just love working in when it comes to, to counseling people? Wow. Right. Okay. So uh, certainly neurofeedback, it's, it's, it's in the 96 plus percentile for effectiveness. So I see amazing change in mental health with that. So that's super fun. And my couples oftentimes that I'm working with, um, I love working with couples. Not everybody does. Um, Couples work is really difficult for therapists. It's challenging. You know, you get two people in a boat and you expect them to row in the same direction. And one couple's row, one person's rowing in one direction, the other person's rowing in the opposite direction. Sometimes someone gets out of the boat entirely. So I'm very comfortable in chaos, I guess. Uh, So I love working with couples. Um, I've seen tremendous healing, tremendous um, growth. Success stories are out there for those of you who are struggling and feel like it's impossible. Uh, it, it really healing and growth is possible. And so I love working with um, couples who are ready to roll up their sleeves and get into it. And um, yeah, so I'm, I like couples who and clients who are kind of goal oriented. And, and I help them understand what their goals are, even if they don't know. So we, mm-hmm. we work on defining goals together and having a plan, working the plan, assessing the plan and getting to the place where um, we graduate. And so probably one of my um, happiest and also kind of saddest moments is when my clients graduate. Mm. We, uh, my goal is to get you to the place where you don't need me anymore. Mm. And um, isn't that beautiful, you know, to see how God heals and uses um, people like myself and you, Samuel and Kelly, to walk alongside someone and to see them leave your office and never need to come back. It's like the happiest, most wonderful, blissful thing is to see and be part of that healing journey. And of course, I'm available for my clients when they need me. And if they want to come back, my door is always open. But um, so I'm a very goal oriented therapist, and I want my clients to get better. And so I'm very directive, I like to be collaborative and work alongside them, I bring my a game if they're here, and they really want to, um, to grow and learn and heal, then I'm excited to do that with them. That's so good. So how can people get a hold of you? Sure. Um, my website is www.insightcounselingpartners.com. And then my email is diane, D-I-A-N-E dot Schroeder, S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R 489 from Ephesians 4, 8 and 9. That's where that comes from. I knew Yeah. And my, um, my number is 616-540-0026. And I love to text. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Yeah. So that's how to find me. Diane, so good. And we'll make sure to put all of that information in the show notes um, about how to contact you. So thank you so much for joining us today and uh, hope you have a good day and a great weekend. Thank you. My pleasure for being here, guys. Thanks for listening to Together. We hope that you've learned a thing or two. If you find the podcast helpful, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like more information on Ada Bible Church and its ministries, or someone to pray or dialogue with about your marriage, email us at care 
at adabible.org.